Hi, I'm Ryan. And I'm JP. And And we we are are Socially socially isolated. Isolated. Now that summer is in full swing, we thought we would chat about my favorite season, The Blockbuster. That's right. We are talking about the movies that spared no expense on the visual effects budgets, the top billing for salaries, and marketing that saturates every second of commercial time. And with movie theaters opening back up, it's these spectacles that are most likely to bring people back in. So to properly talk about the lure and the joy of the blockbuster, we decided we needed to bring in an expert because I, at least, am not an expert on the summer blockbuster. So today we are joined by our fellow podcast aficionado, Dyer Oxley, who is a pop culture journalist and host of one of my favorites, Northwest Nerd Podcast. Welcome, Dyer. Welcome. Thank you very much, guys. This is a this is an honor and an excitement to to be chatting with you guys. Uh, I actually am a fan of your podcast, so it's in turn. Oh, we love it. We love meeting fans. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit more about the Northwest Nerd Podcast. Uh, Northwest Nerd Podcast is essentially a. I've heard it described a few different ways uh, that do that's much better than what I do. Uh, NPR for nerds, this American nerd. Um, but essentially, I'm a journalist in my day job, and I felt that nobody was really giving enough credit to the Comic Con crowd, and so I kind of turned my lens on the Northwest geeks, the the folks that are really interested in Emerald City Comic Con and Rose City Comic Con and the Lilac Comic Con. They they do the tour, and I felt there was a lot of stories there, a lot of stories that don't get told, you know, artists who face um, illnesses and have to relearn how to do their craft, things like that. The, the tea blender who has synesthesia and who can actually taste pop culture. And so those are the kind of stories that I do on Northwest Nerd Podcast. And of course, all of the issues that we deal with in day-to-day life get filtered through our pop culture as well. So there's going to be a little bit of discussion on that. Um, and in the end, you have a little bit of a magazine podcast with uh, with a little bit of something for everybody. One of my favorite episodes, of course, is the um, the Church of Star Wars uh, that's over in Spokane. Yeah, the that, Jedi that was, Alliance. The Jedi Alliance. That's what it, it was a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, uh, that you did that episode. Yeah, and uh, I know this is an audio medium, but be behind me there is that that one won an award from the society of professional journalists so that's the one I, I usually like to to brag about a little bit too because that one uh, uh i don't know that, that one was a little bit special to me mainly also because it was just super cool uh tyler the uh minister is just such a character yeah. you know to, to the point where like I'm, I'm interviewed. I do like a little pre-interview too. And then I'm setting up my mics and so forth. And I'm, and I'm asking him my usual questions to get my levels. What did you have for breakfast today? Yep, yep. I don't eat breakfast. Like, okay. Uh, what did you, uh, <laughs> what's your favorite beer? I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> it was kind of like all these, these things, but I went from that immediately to like these, just this fascinating story about this guy who initially found a, uh, Return of the Jedi lunchbox at a thrift store, and this would have been the '90s. And all of a sudden, it that something had turned between like this had been a toy, but now it's a, something to be cherished. You know, in fact, that was the word he used because when I, I eventually asked him, "Has anybody brought up like the H word with you?" Being that you had two houses full of video games and collectibles, and you were getting zone permits 
uh, violations because you were storing pinball machines in your yard. Uh, and he's like, no, no, uh, people would bring up some stuff, but I would tell them that I'm not hoarding pop culture. I'm cherishing pop culture. And uh, I'm not going to give away the full story. If you want to hear the full one, you can hear it over on Northwest Nerd. But yeah, definitely. that scenario right there led this particular gentleman to forming the Northwest's only Star Wars church. It's a pretty fascinating uh, article. So definitely go listen to it. And, and we'll uh, share it in our show notes so that way people can link directly to it. But today we are, of course, talking about the summer blockbuster I mean, I always associated blockbusters with summer, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. it, other than that, maybe around Christmas time, you'd get like kind of the the Christmas time uh, family, usually like the family movies to pack people into theaters. But as a, as a kind of a child of the eighty and the eighties and the nineties, summer was the blockbuster time, right? Um, but that wasn't so always. In fact, the summers were kind of like this void that they didn't really put out the money makers. It was the time when maybe people would go if they didn't have air conditioning and they would go to the movie or something like that. But that all changed uh, with Jaws and Steven Spielberg. And what we think of as the modern day blockbuster really started with kind of Spielberg and his method of making films. Jaws was not really looked at all that much, but then ended up becoming one of the most successful films in history. And after that, I mean, there's some other folks with Star Wars and so forth, basically the time to release your film was May, June, July, like right at summer. And all through the 80s and the 90s, a lot of the blockbusters we all think of and kind of know as cult films, they were released then. I, I would say today where we might actually be reverting more back to that Christmas time, holiday time, winter time, you know, that's when we're watching Star Wars films now or Harry Potter or but yeah, that summertime really started in that kind of mid seventies. And ever since then, Indiana Jones, back to the future is all yeah. around that, that kind of summertime. When do you think that studios started building their budgets around blockbusters? Like, um, I guess the, the industry term maybe would be tentpole, which actually I'm not totally sure what that means is I'm thinking that means it's holding up the whole tent. It's like, what's keeping the studio alive. But when did this sort of the whole strategy of putting out two or three movies that float the, the boat for everybody else start, start really taking over? Uh, again, this is going to go back to my own personal opinion, but I, I think you can go I don't. I think it's unfair to say it was Jaws in 1975, but the fallout from it, um, probably more with uh, Lucas and Star Wars, is probably a good example for the tentpole thing. I mean, you, that's what you're looking at. But everything under the tent is your toys, especially with Star Wars, right? Uh, your toys. And then look at the Batman films uh, after they were ruined in the 90s. It became important to have like the, the bands on the soundtrack that you're going to get, right? I mean, a lot of kids like me grew up with that Footloose soundtrack. That was almost as cool as having the actual movie, right, on Betamax. Um, so, yeah, you had, you had all these things that were kind of were underneath the tent that weren't necessarily the tent. And before that... You, I don't know. You went to a movie that was pretty cool. They always had stuff and memorabilia for it, but I think maybe star Wars, if I, if I was going to truly opine about this star Wars really changed the game when it came to film and film marketing and the earning potential for these films completely changed. Yeah. I, I would venture to say it's also, um, I think of a tent pole as something that a, 
movie studio is dumping a lot of money into in right. order to re- that return on investment. I had looked it up a, a little bit ago and saw that really the one of the first major, you know, budgeted movies was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yeah. It was one of the most expensive independent films of all time because it was technically not a studio film. And I don't know actually really? about the, yeah, at least the first one, um, but technically we made outside of the studio. Yeah. Am I, am I right about that, Dyer? Uh, oh, you're putting me on the spot there. I, I, don't, I, do <laughs> I know, just assume you know everything. <laughs> well, I do know Terminator. I think you are correct for the first one. I mean, that was really a B movie. It wasn't the most pop was supposed to be the most popular films and it ended up being something that was pretty awesome and entertaining for everybody. The, uh, it, it sounds so weird to say this now, right? But science fiction films got a little bit of attention around that, those time in the eighties. I mean, this is after alien and aliens, uh, were kind of hitting the screen. Terminator was a little bit of a B movie. It ended up being pretty darn successful to the point where, yeah, now we're going to make a a part two film to it. I think part two was a studio though. Um, someone can write in and and correct me on that if I'm wrong. That makes sense. The Terminator 2 film franchise is actually a really good example of something that I, I kind of started thinking about after we started bringing up summer blockbusters. And that was the formula for a film changed with the blockbuster. I mean, before maybe you got some films a little more artistic. They always had some draws to it. Actors and actresses, of course, always drew people into theaters. But now when you think of how are we going to make the film successful? Well, we need one, two, three actors that are going to draw people in there. We're going to need maybe some like top of the line musicians that are top of the billboard charts right now are going to be involved in the uh, in the film Guns N' Roses Terminator 2 that was mm-hmm. that was a big thing um and then we're going to get you know maybe a director or the toy line or something like that that is is going to kind of maximize your return yeah, right the merchandising merchandising that, if we if we look at kind of i'm trying to think of kind of a good example maybe terminator is a good example terminator 1 maybe not supposed to be a blockbuster you know doesn't have all the biggest stars doesn't have all the biggest music in it, but Terminator two totally flipped that switch. Cause now on Schwarzenegger's a star, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. guns and roses was pretty big at that time. And I feel like you can kind of see that switch of maximizing your returns with Terminator. That That's a very good example, Ryan. I I'm kind of glad you brought that one up. Oh, I think it was JP that brought that one up, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, one of the movies that we did want to talk about today was Independence Day. Uh, I looked up some statistics on it. It was a $75 million budget and made about $800 million back. So, I mean, that was like a wow in comparison to like, I think Terminator 2 was a $100 million budget and made $600 million back. I mean, you know, it, it's still you know, astronomical, the success that it had, but I think there was an expectation that it was going to be a good movie. Whereas yeah. I remember when the, the promotions of it seemed like it was a big deal, but actually I'm starting to wonder if like the, the big love of this film came as so many films do in the rentals and the, the mm-hmm. TV and the, the syndication. So I'd love to talk more about that as to what, you know, when a film opens big, but you never see it a second time versus movies now that are ingrained in our culture because of of their syndication. But was this one a hit at the box office, JP? 
I believe so. I think it uh, it stayed in in the top um, billing for quite a while. Um, maybe it was the um, the independence, you know, of the of the nineties, of the late nineties. Um, the fact that it was a um, kind of a coming up movie, you know, where everything is destroyed and then the little guy <laughs> is able to destroy this huge. There were a slew of, of those that came out around the same time. Yeah, the yeah. What exactly. actually take walk us through the plot real quick. Refresh our our viewers' memories for those people who don't have this one locked in their memory like I do. Well, this is this one is uh, definitely locked into my memory. Uh, I was one of those um, people who saw it multiple times in the theaters, and then uh, I think I do remember having at least the VHS tape of it, maybe the DVD. Um, I don't think I could recite lines like I could with Spaceballs or some other uh, <laughs> The Princess Bride, but uh, it was a movie about um, a set of aliens that come to the planet Earth and start landing at very unique locations, which happen to be significant monuments, significant political or unique locations, for instance, uh, up above the White House, I think at the Eiffel Tower, uh, th- there was a, a variety of different uh, spots and it was counting down and no one could figure out except for this lone uh, cable guy who happened to be Jeff Goldblum and uh, tried to convince his ex-wife who happens to work for the White House that they needed to get out. And it, it was a dire situation that there was a countdown and they were going something bad was going to happen, which, of course, you know, everything kind of ensues after that. And. Um, as Dyer was mentioning, the formula is, of course, big blockbuster people, you know, heavy hitters in in the movie genre at the time. Uh, and I don't think there was much of a soundtrack, but they did have Will Smith in the movie. That's right. And this was in the era where he was releasing songs for, you know, Wild Wild West and, yeah. you know, I'm, Men, in um, Black. Men in Black, of course. So, yeah, yeah, no song. Good, good point. Yeah, yeah. Was there a song that just wasn't a hit? <laughs> Um, REM, I think that was the beginning song. This was 1996. It, it almost feels like this was Will Smith's first kind of entrance into big Hollywood. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was still kind of a thing, I believe, at that time. Yeah. And Wild Wild West and these other films are coming along. Um, and, it, it, you know, aside from Will Smith, I think was one of the biggest draws, but also Jeff Goldblum, Bill mm-hmm. Pullman, uh, Vivica A. Fox, yeah, um, yeah. and for all of us Star Trek nerds out there, Brent Spiner. Um, That's right, the little cameo. You did have this kind of star-studded cast throughout that entire film. That if you were interested in various films, you know Jeff Goldman, Bill Pullman, Will Smith, Brent Spiner, very different. You know, audiences are probably watching those actors, and. Um, yeah, it kind of goes into that formula of the blockbuster. Who are we going to get to maximize our returns? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I mean, in that case, it was a solid, solid pick for casting. The other thing that I point out for this film, though, as far as maximizing returns, uh, not only is it a summer blockbuster, it's named after a holiday. And, yeah. You know, it's it's if you watch this film, you you think you get the feeling that, you know, we just defeated the Nazis again. Right. Like our generation got to defeat 
the World War II equivalent of like a bad guy, right? Yeah, or annihilation. Yeah. I have to jump in for one of my friends whose biggest movie pet peeve is when the title of the film is then used in film dialogue. And I think oh. this film wins for most cringeworthy use of the film title. <laughs> if that bothers you. I would almost a- agree with you. When I have like some rules against film. One my biggest one is if it's if it's named after a holiday, it's are already sucks. Like they're they're trying to, but I would say this <laughs> film defies that rule. This film kind of breaks that so. rule. Yeah. Um, I I do believe there's a film called like Valentine's Day and, and oh, there's and, a whole slew. There's like mm-hmm. Mother's Day. There. <laughs> yeah, and none of them are good. They they yeah. just know that they got to the name first, right? Well, it's <laughs> I do think it's clever on. though because there's not a lot of songs, you know, popular music that are related to Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, unlike Christmas, where you know, of course, there's a whole industry right. on Christmas Eve. So it's a smart bet to be the only Mother's Day movie so that if there's someone's going to trot it out every year, you're sort of, you know, the only one they can trot out and play. So I think it's a clever move, but it's true that they're, they're almost universally terrible. Uh, It's interesting. Independence Day did not take very long to make, I would say about a year. And in the, even in the nineties, that was unheard of. They, they uh, wrote it. I believe he wrote it with uh, Dean Devlin uh, in Mexico at the time they were writing just, a script, they banged it out like in a weekend. And then they came back here one year later, they were actually filming stuff for this film one month before it was released in July, wow. uh, doing some corrections. Uh, one of those corrections uh, that I love is that, um, s- sorry for all the spoilers for people that are, I don't know, 20, 30 years <laughs> late on this, but um, they, uh, they initially wanted Randy Quaid to defeat the aliens with his crop duster. Oh, I remember right? that. Because he was a yeah. crop duster pilot. Yeah. That uh, makes a lot of sense. They thought that in a film with, you know, aliens and so forth, that the crop duster was not believable. So the studio, at least. So they had them redo all the effects with a fighter jet, and they yep. had to refilm yep. Randy Quaid. You'll notice that people's haircuts, like Adam Baldwin's haircut is different between the scenes underneath you know, underneath the base versus above the base. It's because they filmed these like a month before it was actually released. Um, and it also means they had to redo some of those effects. Uh, there was no crop duster that went up against the ma- big laser, you know, machine that the aliens were using. It was now a uh, fighter jet. Um, that explosion that blows up the primary weapon is the exact same explosion that blows up the building. I, I forget if it's in LA or New York. I think it was in New York. Mm. Um, that's the, the same explosion. Building. They inverted it because they needed a quick fix. So they turned <laughs> the explosion around and that's what is blowing up the laser in the end. But they, I would love to see the original film where a crop duster, like a little biplane I goes do up. love that they think that that was just too unbelievable <laughs> of all yeah. the things. Yeah. I. Sure. Okay. I think I do remember seeing a deleted scene of that with the oh, I would um, love to see that with the crop duster and it, it's almost the exact same kind of shot for shot type thing where you can see him you know kind of like swooning around trying to get up to the uh, right. to that top um but the funny thing is I, I think that he's being followed you know with the uh, the, the other F16s and right like, how is a crop duster How going as fast work? as a jet? <laughs> How does a crop duster outmaneuver alien spaceships? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that too. The jets can barely outmaneuver. <laughs> and, and sort of the reason that I bring that up is to kind of comment on how impressive it is that this has an impact to the point where they make a sequel 
I don't know, 20 years later or yeah. so that is kind of the inverse of, of this film as far as impact goes. But for a film that was produced in a year, this was the second highest grossing film of all time behind Jurassic Park. It was the highest grossing for 1996. And I say that for its time. I mean, things yeah, have changed yeah. since then. So it definitely was a box office success. Uh, I think culturally, it was also a success in that, I mean, I've gone to parties where for the 4th of July, this is what we are doing. We are watching this film. We are saying the Bill Pullman speech mm -hmm. word for word. Net, we, today we celebrate our independence day you know um it, it, i think one of the reasons why it's a little successful this is gonna sound so weird to say but i'm gonna stand by it it's this is not a smart film you know this is not this is not making you scratch your head too much i'm you can probably watch this film a few times and and, and wonder huh like how does this exactly make sense but it does, it, it works. They put all of these cheap Hollywood thrills and in, in the blockbuster formula together in a year. And I, I feel that they, they pull it off in a way that when you watch this film, it really is just fun and pleasing. Uh, and, and I mean, I've never watched it and was not happy that I actually watched it and I'll watch it again, again for the holiday. So yeah. I would say, yes, I did like this film. Um, I, it sounds like I just insulted it while saying I was liking it, but <laughs> I, I mean that in the most endearing sense. Yeah. I, I think it, this film works on so many levels and part of the reason it works and is impressive is because of the way that they were able to pull this off up to the point, like I said, they're filming it a month before. I, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. That's a thing. They were filming reshoots a month before it was put out, but yeah. What about you, JP? Did you have, did, I'm assuming you had seen this movie many times before. What did you think on this rewatch? Oh, definitely. I loved it. I, uh, I could see why, uh, you know, 16 year old, no, 18 year old JP would have been at the movie theaters multiple times chewing at the popcorn while the actors are chewing on the, on the scenery, because it, it was definitely one of those, um, the, the quintessential summer blockbuster, you know, it, it's not a thought piece. It is an action piece. It is all about the, you know, get, get the good guys, you know, the, together and, you know, destroy and the, the, the motherships. The, the one-liners. This is movie is the king of Welcome the one-liners. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that one. Welcome <laughs> to earth. Well, Ryan, how about you? What do you think of the movie? Oh yeah. You know, I wondered if I'm uh, watching it as an adult, if I would there be scenes that I had forgotten or, or if I really did remember it as verbatim as I thought I did. And I did, I don't think there was any scenes I was surprised by that. I was like, Oh yeah, this romantic subplot. I, I feel like this, this film checks some pretty large boxes and yeah, it didn't have any subtext that I didn't catch the first hundred times. So yeah, it was always a fun to watch and it's a family favorite too. So I'm very familiar with this one. Well, that'll do it for this week. We had such a great conversation that we decided to break this into two episodes. So come back next week for part two. Dyer, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight. We'll have to have you back to, to talk more geek culture with us. Thank you so much. It has been a delight. Thank you so much for, for uh, getting me not out of my apartment, which I don't leave that much these days, but thank you for getting me virtually out of my apartment. It's a total pleasure. And Dyer, where can people find you on uh, the social medias? Here's the thing. Instead of telling people handles, I do tell them just look up NW Nerd on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook because due to some 
conflicts with the name. It's an underscore here, it's a dash here. Either way, it's gonna take you to the spot. And if you wanna make it easy on yourself, you can go to nw-nerd.com and it'll take you to all those places. Nice. And you can follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Indie Arts Voice. And I'm on Twitter at JP Avila. You can find more information about the show on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or on our website at soisopodcast.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, review on your platform of choice. And come back next month. Bye for now.